Hello there and a very warm welcome to the Posterity Podcast with me, Nigel Dugdale. The Posterity Podcast is brought to you by the Limerick Post, working in association with Limerick City Community Radio. Over the coming weeks and months, I will introduce you to a diverse range of voices from across many sectors in Limerick society. Some you'll know, others maybe not so much. I hope this podcast will capture the voices of those who see Limerick as home. I hope to get an understanding of what makes them tick and to discover their hopes and dreams for Limerick at a time when so much opportunity is in our grasp. The official definition of posterity relates to all future generations of people. These people of the future could be your children, your grandchildren or great-grandchildren, or any people born after you. So every decision we make today, be it by those in power, in business circles, or in community development, will affect the lives of those coming behind us. This podcast will tell people stories, capture their voices for posterity and delve into the ideas, ambition and hopes that they have as we prepare for and sow the seeds for the Limerick of tomorrow. I hope you join me on this journey. I hope you enjoy listening to the stories you hear. And most of all, I hope some of what you hear will inspire you. Do get in contact with me if you have any suggestions for future guests, questions I might ask, or just general feedback on the show. So, I'm delighted to welcome to the studio a person who's been at the forefront of selling Limerick both nationally and internationally for many years. Karen Brosnahan is General Manager of the Shannon Region Conference and Sports Bureau. Having worked in Board Falta, New York, and in the hotel sector in sales and marketing roles, Karen started working in what was the Shannon Region Conference and Sports Bureau back in 2003, and for almost two decades, she's successfully delivered business in the conference, corporate, and sports sector for the Shannon Region, and has been at the heart of many of the big events the region has welcomed over recent years. Karen, you're very welcome to the studio. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. You're very welcome. Karen, I'm going to start with COVID. You must be delighted it is slowly coming to an end and you're back out and I presume back at it. Absolutely. Um, It's all about reconnecting with people. I mean, it's been a tragic time for tourism in general across the globe. I've been working from home since March of last year, but I suppose nothing really stopped for us in the sense that we still needed to stay in contact with people. We still needed to have Limerick front and foremost in people's minds. So for the first couple of months when the realisation of COVID actually hit, everything was about trying to cancel business and not lose that business to our region. So get people to maybe postpone it or to think about coming in future years. So that was a huge body of work. So thanks to the support from the local authorities in the region and to Fall to Ireland and to our great tourism trade, we were able to continue our work to actually support our clients in being able to postpone their business. And I suppose just to be there to help them through what really was a really, really tough time for business. For those people who don't know what you do, because I mean, people in the world of business probably know you. You've been around for a long, long time. You've been delivering a lot of work and business to the region. But for those who've never come across you, tell me exactly what it is your role is all about. Absolutely. So 
essentially my role is to win events, conferences, sports events um, and incentive business for the Shannon region. So Limerick, Clare, Tipperary and Offaly. So, you know, what essentially does that mean? It means that I need to go out and I need to encourage people to choose Limerick as the destination for their global event. And this is for people that might have a myriad of destinations in mind. They might be looking at a warm destination like Hawaii or they might be looking at somewhere like Iceland and I'm suddenly putting Limerick on the table and sometimes it is a wild card to come away from maybe a capital city or a destination that they're familiar with and and, and look at Limerick and what it has to offer. And thankfully, we were set up in about 2003 and it was a collaborative effort between the local authorities, chambers of commerce, tourism trade, then Shannon Development back in the day, now Fall to Ireland as our tourism authority. And the idea was that we needed a, a conference bureau that could support people to offer a free service, to be able to give impartial and professional advice and to kind of handhold people, um, international meeting planners, but also to try and, I suppose, encourage local people who have an opportunity to bid for an event through something that they're involved in or someone that they know to become ambassadors for our city and for our region. So that's a huge part of what I do is really trying to get people to raise their hand and say, you know what, I know a great event out there that would really work for Limerick or the wider Midwest. I'm going to bid for it. And that's where we come on board. We offer that free support and then we help them to access funding through Fall to Ireland, which, Nigel, I'm, I'm delighted to say after the, uh, I say after the pandemic, but as we emerge out of the pandemic, Fall to Ireland have actually trebled their support for anybody trying to win an international... It's an interesting one because there does seem to be post-pandemic this particular I mean I've noticed it a lot in the arts you know there seems to be more money up in in the arts council so, so you're saying that this is also there's money trickling down I presume it's it's a supportive way of saying you know what we we believe that we need to start really getting people back into the country when they're allowed and um and it's trickling down to you guys absolutely I mean there's always been a support fund for somebody to go out and bid for an event so we um offer site visit support so if you know somebody internationally that needs to come and see Limerick that has potential Potential to deliver a conference or an event, there's funding for that. If you need to travel internationally to deliver a Limerick-led message or a message about Ireland as a destination for events, that money is there also. And predominantly before the pandemic, you used to get maybe 10 euros for each international delegate that would come to the island of Ireland. That is now 30 euros per international wow. delegate. So it's a phenomenal amount of support through Fall to Ireland and then again working in tandem with the local convention bureaus, so ourselves. And, and just to give us an idea, tell me some of the events over recent years that you've really, you know, been behind getting in. Absolutely. I suppose there's a wide variety and they, they cover sport, they cover conferences. If I look at some of the events that are due maybe to come in the next number of years, so a lot of people will be familiar with the fact that Limerick was to host the Tag Rugby World Cup this year um, and that event is now coming in 2023. Most recently, um, we've highlighted the fact that lacrosse men's under 23 world championships is also coming to Limerick that's next year and um, that's just two sports events that have come in recent times in the past we've held everything from world down syndrome swimming championships power chair football uh, Japanese karate just to mention a few on the sporting side and from a conference perspective everything from the Institute of Electronic and, and Electrical Engineers who held their sensors conference here um, next year we we have a World Rural Health Doctors Conference that the medical school and the university bid for and won. 
um, and that'll bring a thousand rural doctors to Limerick for a global conference. I mean, that's phenomenal spotlight for Limerick. We also have another medical stream conference called the Prader Willie Association, and that is um, a condition that affects young children. And the association actually looked at the island of Ireland and they chose Limerick as the perfect location to bid for their global conference. And they went to Cuba a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic, and they pitched Limerick for their 2023 conference. And I'm absolutely delighted to say... And when you're talking about delegates and you're... You know, what sort of numbers are we looking at in in some of these? You know, what ranges do we look at? I mean, delegates work anywhere from a board meeting of 10 people right up to a conference in excess of 1,000. In this region, we can cater for conferences up to about 1,000 people because we use the concert hall facility at the University of Limerick. And then outside of that, we would use the other academic institutions in Toos and in Mary Immaculate College and then our hotel sector, obviously, as well. And then some of the periphery venues that sometimes you mightn't think might be associated with a conference, somewhere like Limerick Racecourse or Thoman Park. Um, we're actually spoiled for choice in this region and we have a huge amount of standalone venues that work really well for gala dinners. So whether it's the Hunt Museum Garden, St. Mary's Cathedral, some of the wonderful facilities in King John's Castle, in Bunratty or Adair Manor or Drumoland. I mean, we really have the absolute epitome of the ideal destination for events. Oh, and you're bringing them here. Um, Karen, tell me about growing up. You know, where did you grow up? What sort of a family did you have? Where were you from? Yeah, so I'm, I'm one of four. So I'm the eldest of four. Um, I've kind of lived all over Limerick, if I be truthful. Um, started off in the city. Um, my parent, my mom is from the North Circular Road. My dad's from Krakora. So I was born on the North Circular Road. But eventually, as I grew up, always wanted to live in the country. I think this was a thing my mom had. Um, so we ended up living in Capamore and County Limerick. My mom then got a job in analog devices in Limerick and decided it was too much of a, of a trek and moved us all into Dora Doyle. I'm leading the way to say she was a very powerful woman <laughs> and got around my dad in, in every sense to, to make the, the decisions on where we went. So more for the most part, my younger brothers and sisters would have grown up in Dora Doyle and we went to St. Paul's National School. Um, from there, I went to Laurel Hill to the Kaloshta, uh, which I absolutely loved. And that was a battle because my dad did not understand how a Limerick girl wanted to go to school and speak Irish every day. And none of my siblings or my parents spoke Irish. So I was definitely uh, now, out now, there on my own. what was the choice in sending you there? Was that your choice? <laughs> it was or my was it choice, really? but yes, absolutely. And it created a lot of family arguments because none of my parents felt they'd be able to support me. And they didn't know anyone who could support somebody that wanted to do all of their education through Irish. But I was a little bit headstrong and off I went anyway, knowing absolutely nobody. And I suppose the great thing about Laurel Hill is the camaraderie that you gain there. You know, whether you were going to at the time the A school or the C school, there was just this whole sense of, you know, belonging there. And some of my best friends to this day were my colleagues and I, they followed me through college. Some went to Dublin, some stayed locally, but we're still actually friends over 30 odd years later. What were you like as a kid? I would say I was probably the the more studious um, I head in a book, not necessarily it's always funny an because academic I always style. get this idea <laughs> of people who'd send themselves to the Colossus and Laurel Hill as always, they were always the more studious types. Yes, I, I was know. definitely studious, maybe not necessarily academic, you know, I, I maybe didn't have a thirst for knowledge, but I loved literature. So I was always reading books and I think, you know, and I loved Irish. I mean, people used to laugh at me, Nigel. Um, I loved Buntus. If you're old enough <laughs> to remember oh, Buntus, no. yeah. you started off at like 
9 a.m. in primary school and from 9 to 12 you did Bontus, which was just Irish, Irish stories, Irish grammar and so on. And I just loved it. And I think that love of Irish really came from primary education. And my primary education was in the Mercy Convent in Capamore and the nuns loved Irish. And as a result, they loved me because I just literally relished Irish class. And I brought that back with me when I came back to Dora Doyle. And I think... I realised when I was in St. Paul's that actually I was quite good at Irish. I probably wasn't great at maths. I probably wasn't great at, at much else, but I was great at Irish. And I think that's what led me to picking the Kaloshta as my secondary did you, How were you on, on the other languages, like French, German? What did Absolutely you choose? Absolutely brutal. Really? Brutal. Yeah, I'm not somebody who pick, picks up languages easy. It was just an affinity I had with Irish. And I've kind of carried Where it through. Where do you think throughout. that came from, that affinity? I mean, was, it, was there anything from home that sort of... No, that's the funny thing. There actually wasn't anything in home life um, that would have, I really do think it was just the way it was taught in primary school at that time um, and it certainly stayed with me because I ended up going to UL and studying business and I ended up becoming chairperson of the Common Gaelic which to be honest for, for, for the most part was a lovely sociable side to the University of Limerick where you got to I suppose speak Irish, we did some drama but there was always a huge social occasion to it and it was a great way to meet people so I loved the fact then that my, my my job, I suppose, that I ended up in was was really, whilst I mightn't be speaking Irish every day, I'm really passionate about Irish heritage and culture and I get to talk about that all the time. And even though I only maybe nowadays have the cupola fuckle left because I'm not speaking Irish so regularly, I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of being from Limerick and my Irish heritage and I think I bring that across in my in my job very much so. But people sometimes say, does she ever shut up? Does she ever mm. take a breath or, you know, but but I think when you're passionate about something, it finds its way into everything that you do. If I met the 12-year-old Karen in on, on her way to the gates of the Kaloshta and I asked you, what is your dream for what you'd like to be when you grew up? What would you have said? I'll tell you exactly what I would have said. Um, so 12-year-old Karen um, wanted to work on Wall Street. Don't ask me where that came from, but she had this dream to work on Wall Street. Um, I never got to Wall Street, but I did get to New York, as yeah. you said earlier in your intro. Um, as part of my co-op from UL, I ended up um, getting a role with Board Falsha in Park Avenue in New York. And I think when I got there, that little you know idea of working on Wall Street was probably still in the back of my head somewhere. Um, and once I experienced tourism and just the, oh my God, it's such a dynamic industry and the people I had such I'm sorry so when you got there was that just a random positioning that you got through college I mean you were doing yeah. you were doing business was that what you were doing you were I was doing business um, and when you get to third year you get to major and minor but for, for a second year when you're choosing where to go on work placement it really is more or less a geographical idea do you want to stay in Ireland would you like to get some international experience and I just put my hand up and said you know I'd love to go to the States I'd love to go and see what the world has I wasn't very travelled we weren't a family that did a lot of international I been to the UK maybe that was as far as I'd been and I heard that Aer Lingus and Board Falter were doing interviews so I decided to put myself forward and luckily I got one of the two places that were available in Board Falter. Pure luck. And then did that lead to the first job? I Absolutely mean and that's the funny thing because I suppose that's where my appetite was first wet for tourism, you know, working with the tourism industry. And we used to work in a call centre in New York and it was a 1-800 number. And you would answer, you know, hello, Tourism Ireland. And people would say, oh, I want to go to Ireland on my holidays. Where should I go? So you were using the knowledge you had maybe of a child going around Ireland, visiting the beach or going, where did you go for your Sunday drive? 
And when I came home, I realised I really didn't have a huge amount of hotel experience. I mean, I actually don't know had we ever, as a family, even stayed in a hotel. We'd done the B&B and the camping. So I really thought the next step in this journey is a hotel. And would you believe, um, and it's just, again, another piece of luck in the story. There was a lady working with my mom in Analog and herself and her husband were after buying a hotel. And this hotel was going to be a project for them. And it was called the Drummondair Bay Hotel. And it's actually belonged to Dennis and Lily Collison, whose sons are John and Patrick of wow. Stripe Success. So I remember those two boys when they were very little. And I have to say... I still know them. <laughs> not personally. I haven't met them in a long number of years. But I knew then that they There's were There's a something. conference we need to get. The Stripe International <laughs> Conference. Absolutely. They were special boys back then. They were absolutely fantastic. Do you ever meet a child and just know they're going to do great things in life? And those three kids... Tommy, Patrick and John, I knew they were all destined for something great. So I spent um, my second co-op working in Drum and Ear with Dennis and Lily and I got a real grounding in the hotel industry there and I actually went back to work for them for a year after I finished college. So yeah, like I mean, I, I've wow. just been really lucky with the opportunities that have come my way. I think there's a lot of people in Limerick who say, they often say, you know, does anybody know the Collisons well enough to be able to just <laughs> pop them through? Well, you worked with mum and dad and sort of brought up the kids, you know, so if there's uh, that, well, I'll tell you something. So Stripe International conference yes. here in Limerick where we'll say 2026 <laughs> there's a task to lay absolutely. down for you tell me about when when your first job you know when you realized that was there a point when you realized tourism and attracting tourism and it doesn't necessarily have to be in Limerick but that that was your that was your niche is that that's definitely where you wanted to go yeah I think it probably started from a sales perspective I I really found that in in kind of selling you know and and telling people why they should choose to come to a destination I really got a buzz out of that Nigel you know, and if somebody took your advice on board and actually followed through and, and booked and it was almost like, oh, wow, I've kind of achieved something. And even though the revenue side wasn't for me, it was for the business. I really felt like it was something special. And I suppose as I progressed and as I looked at other places to go and work, I ended up moving to Lynch Hotels, which was a really dynamic hotel group back in the day, pre um, the economic downturn. Um, and it was a very sales oriented environment. And I really got a good grounding in sales there. And I think... Once you've been bitten by the tourism bug, it's very, very hard to kind of walk away from it. And I spent some time working in some other properties around the region. And I came across this very dynamic lady called Mary Fitzgerald of Fitzgerald's Woodlands House Hotel in Adair. I mean, not just Mary, the entire family. I mean, they just yeah. incredible. Um, and Mary was president of the Irish Hotels Federation the year I went to work for her. Um, I want to say it was 99. And she was the first female president as well of the Federation. But Mary would be in Dublin at a meeting and she'd ring you and you'd nearly be afraid Mary might get knocked down or fall into a hole in the ground because she was literally buzzing. She'd have so many ideas and so many things to tell you. And I was just so in awe of her as an entrepreneur and as a woman who was breaking down boundaries as well um, across the island of Ireland, not just in tourism. Um, and I learned so much from her. And I stayed there for five years working in her sales and marketing department and an opportunity arose. They were starting a convention bureau in Limerick and I heard about it and I thought, you know, I'm here five years. I have had great learnings from some fantastic mentors and maybe now is an opportunity maybe to put all of that learning together and do something that I would have seen as like kind of for the greater part of the region as opposed to just one property. How long did you spend in New York? I only just less than a year. Wow. It's yeah. interesting listening to you. You you seem to have stayed close to home whereas yes. a lot of people who might fall into that tourism world would be in the likes of Dubai's. They'd be heading into, you know, Asia to, to the most glamorous locations. What do you think it was that sort of 
what made you want to not only just stay at home, but sell it so much? Yeah, I, I think I'm a bit of a home bird anyway. I'm very close to my family. And I think that probably played a big part in it. None of my friends traveled internationally. They went as far as Dublin, but not beyond. And they did end up working for global companies. But I think, I don't know, I, I really do think it was my love for Limerick. And I came from when, you know, Limerick would have maybe, you know, not had the greatest reputation internationally and had to deal with a lot of negative press. And I felt like I really wanted to make a difference in that sphere. I wanted people to see the Limerick I saw, meet the people that I met every day and just see their passion and enthusiasm and their love for the city. And I felt that if you could just bottle all of that and sell that to somebody, then it didn't matter what I was trying to get them to bring, whether it was a conference, an event or just a family get together they would buy in if they could see what I could see. So when you moved to, I think at the time, a Shannon Region Conference and Sports Bureau in 2003, I mean, obviously that was fledgling, it was new. The overall brief, it's kind of in there in the title, they wanted to, but was that, did it come about because there was just a lack locally of that type of, or, that type of um, inward investment in terms of conferencing? And, and as a result, they needed to deal with it. Is that where it came from? Absolutely. It was very much a collaborative effort. Everybody came together and said, look, Limerick has to look to the next stage of what it is we're trying to attract business-wise. Where is key business? And we call it nowadays the mice industry. It's meetings, incentive, conferences and events. But it was very much just national conferences back in 2003. And when I first started in the Convention Bureau, it'd be remiss of me to even talk about it without mentioning another mentor in my career, which was John Fahey, who actually started in the Convention Bureau with me. He was originally our, our, our chief executive before he retired. And he was the general manager of the Limerick Inn. And this is his story that I'm articulating, you know, he would have people come into him with big national conferences. And it got to the point where, you know, he would be overflowing into the Limerick Ryan back in the time or maybe into juries. And he really saw the benefit of this business. And he and a number of the hoteliers locally went to the Chamber of Commerce who went to the concert hall to Michael Murphy there at the time. And they put a fund together and said, look, let's do a bit of strategy around this. Let's really look and see what could Limerick get? Where's the revenue stream? Maybe what's the economic impact of this type of business. And they realized that there was other cities internationally, maybe like Manchester, you know, uh, cities across the US, Congress cities, that were really capitalizing on this business. So out of that was born the idea of having a convention bureau. And we started as Meet Limerick Shannon. And as we became, I suppose, more encompassing of the wider Midwest, we rebranded to the Shannon Region Conference and Sports Bureau. Um, And it's just been a journey. I mean, it's fantastic. And so tell me, the key aspects of a place or a destination that attracts this type of thing, I mean, what, what are the, when you're that salesperson and you're going out, what do you think are the, the buzz things that make those people tick when they hear about, and it doesn't just have to be about Limerick, but when you're selling something, a place, what, what are you aiming to get across? I'm glad you asked me this because it has actually changed dramatically Um, over the last, I would say, decade specifically, but actually as we emerge out of COVID, um, there are so many learnings and so many changes in how you would actually market a destination and what people are looking for. The buzzwords today are things like sustainability, wellness and social impact. So what do I mean by those? So sustainability, are you coming from a destination that's considered to be, you know, 
interested in the sustainable um, event sector? Are, are they, is the destination looking to see what impact events is having on the destination? Is it like, for instance, Limerick is a green leaf city? What does that mean to people? You know, obviously it's everything from how dynamic the city is in terms of our air pollution, our, our waste control, um, how we actually manage um, businesses within the city and county environment. And from an environmental perspective, that's really important to a lot of corporate companies. We in the Convention Bureau are signed up to this um, it's like a charter, for want of a better description, but it's a load of global destinations that sign up to something called the Global Destination Sustainability Index. And every year, we have the region benchmarked against counterparts throughout the world that would market themselves as international cities. And they look at everything, and it's very much support. We're very much supported, I should say, by the local authority um, in both Limerick and Clare, because they're the two sections of the region that we submit for. Um, and they look at everything that's done from one side of the region to the other in terms of how much green air areas are available per 100,000 population, how much blue areas are available per 100,000. You know, what's the air pollution levels? We work in tandem with the EPA for some of that information. You know, circular economy. It takes every single thing into perspective. And event organisers actually do want to know that. Throw something in the mix, right? COVID, and it's an interesting one. COVID hits and suddenly everybody is using a thing called Zoom that we didn't even, well, I certainly didn't know about two years ago. What is to stop in the next couple of years people saying, well, you know what, flying across the Atlantic or flying across Europe to attend conferences and to sort of probably go on what might be considered to be a junket when it can be done on Zoom and done in Zoom in creative ways too because I've seen some interesting is that a fear for the sector is that something that people are starting to talk about or do you think that that interpersonal connection is what's important there is no doubt that business travel is not seen to be the most sustainable activity in terms of a carbon output however I would say people involved in in coming for events they are big thinkers in the whole area of sustainability and social impact. And they will always look at their events and how those events will make a difference to a destination, as well as things like face-to-face, peer networking, um, idea generation. It is very, very hard to get a feel for things like that over Zoom or on a Teams call. You really need that person-to-person interaction to really get the creative juices flowing and the ideas generating. And a lot of those companies, to offset their carbon, will actually get involved in a project in a destination, maybe around planting indigenous trees or doing something from a social impact perspective, like getting involved with a local community, maybe something like painting the local community centre, maybe working with some community-led initiatives like a community garden, and they will actually put funds from their company into something at a local level. So they're actually leaving a very positive legacy, um, much longer than their event ever Mm. would. Um, and then also that's something positive for their staff to engage in. So it's a real feel-good factor when you so, do so something you're feeling, positive. So you're feeling very confident about that sector continuing Absolutely. to grow and, and as the region. An interesting one, I remember I was listening to you, I think we were on something a couple of weeks back having a chat, and you mentioned the gay games that yes. that we hosted in Limerick um, what year was it? Was it 2014, 2015? No, what we actually did was we bid for it in 2013. Um, we unfortunately didn't get to host it. Um, it's one of my pet projects that Sorry, I love talking I was wrong. about. It was the, the, at the time, we were bidding for this yes. and we were successful in getting to the very final stages Absolutely. of this massive conference. Yeah. But you, and this is where I was coming, you spoke the other day about it very much. It wasn't a win, but 
um, you spoke from the heart very much, but this was a pet project of yours. You, Absolutely. Why? Okay, so... Um, I suppose, how did it start? Yeah, how it started. <laughs> so I come across the event, um, oh, just in research and international events. And then locally, um, somebody said to me, oh, there's two guys in Limerick would like to bid for the gay games. I was like, I've heard of that. I'd love to meet them. So we arranged a coffee um, and Killian Flynn and John James Hickey will remember this conversation. And I think they weren't sure what to expect. And I was like, what do I need to do? I need to be involved. And their passion and enthusiasm was just incredible. And they, they built a wider group around them. And, and I worked on the tourism side of it. So we started off with nine international cities. And, and amongst that was cities like Rio and Amsterdam and Limerick, London and Paris and <laughs> Orlando. And suddenly you're thinking... And, and, and a city that wouldn't be known for its gay scene, by no, the way. You know, absolutely. Where it, there's no um, Mardi Gras going down through Limerick. Um, no, you know, like we yeah. had pride. Yeah. But like, you know, we certainly weren't weren't um, an established city that would have been recognised in that regard. We weren't an established city that would have been recognised for an event that would attract 15,000 people. It's bigger than the Olympics. I mean, it was just crazy. So it was a journey. We, we, we you know, we put our best foot forward. Um, the guys put so much work into the bid book, presentations, everything. And next thing, we were shortlisted. And we were like absolutely just blown away and shortlisted with London and Paris and Limerick. Like how often do you hear those three cities mentioned as in in the same line, looking at the same event? So it was phenomenal and it really made us realise how powerful Limerick was as a destination. So we had to present a bid um, in the United States and we also had to bring a site inspection committee to Limerick. And actually you were involved, Nigel, I remember. Back in, yes, yeah. yes, you did. You actually did I remember did a, being a bit bamboozled. You by did the a fact walk around that, Limerick. We did, but we also, I remember the, the, the press at the time was Limerick up against Rio, against yes. um, London, again, and it was it really was something that it, it it captured the imagination. But I felt at the time that I just wished people realized just how the gravity. It, it was a bit like building Knock Airport in my mind. You know, but they all thought we were bonkers at the time. But ye went out and ye actually did. A blooming good job. Oh, well, know. we had so much support locally. It was phenomenal. Like everybody got behind it. Everybody on the, everybody on the street wanted to be part of it. And actually, one of the things we did do was we went out and got sentiment on the street and we video recorded it and brought that with us to the United States when we presented the bid in Cleveland in Ohio in 2013. Now, we came second in the process. It was a silent vote um, in the sense that no, you know, it wasn't a hands up, people put their vote. Um, but what was actually phenomenal was we stood up on the stage in front of 150 people, all members of the Federation of Gay Games. Many of them had been Irish people who had moved to the United States or had Irish heritage. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house when we finished. And I couldn't understand why people were crying. And it was because we wanted their event in Limerick. And they just thought this was fantastic, that an Irish city had come so far in the process and actually wanted this event, the Gay Games. And we did. And for not just because it had a fantastic economic impact, of course, that ticks one box, but just for what it would do for Ireland, for inclusivity and diversity and... God, it was such like... And by the way, this was pre-equality. Um, it was pre-equality, um, marriage, you know, referendum, everything. Yeah. yeah, it really was. And I still get the shakes a little bit yeah, when no, I talk it was, about and, it. And I, and I can sense it. And, I, and I, I, I think I remember at the time there was a real sense of just... And, and more and more people getting behind yes, it as it absolutely. went along. You know, it was I it think was it, wonderful. it really pitched Limerick as a really inclusive location for events. And I think it made people sit up and take notice. Did it change your way of pitching Limerick as a destination in 
itself. Did you think differently? I mean, there was a different approach to yeah, how... Yeah, it, it really It was very did. much about the people, very much, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was yeah. very much about the people um, and what the people of Limerick would do once we had this international audience come here and how what they would rally around. And the great thing was that even though we didn't win the event... The Federation of Gay Games was so vested in Limerick, they actually brought their annual conference, which is an international conference, to Limerick two years later, which was fantastic, yeah. you know. And um, we've built a relationship that's continued since, oh, nearly a decade long at this stage, you know, so... Let's look at the infrastructure of Limerick. Now, because I know that you also deal with the Clare stuff. You could possibly argue, and I mean, I, I'm from a theatre background and I sometimes look and I have a huge affinity with UCH and I have a huge affinity with the Lime Tree and... but. You know, they also double as lecture halls. They they are not, wouldn't be seen as necessarily cultural centres that are in the middle of a town, despite how wonderful both organisations are. And I think when it comes to maybe conferencing, if I was a devil's advocate, I'd be looking at Limerick and going, well, you know, we have a lot of hotels, we have a lot of, you know medium, small to medium sized venues and there we've we've wonderful venues, as you said, in the King John's Castles and the you know, Adair Manor and are we missing? as Ireland's third city, a centrally located state-of-the-art conference facility? 100% we are. Absolutely. Um, whilst I will go out and my pitch for Limerick will be we can host up to 1,000 people, the reality of that once the concert hall is in use or if the lime tree is in use, we're then back to a, a limited number of hotels that can actually cater for a large number. And if you take that down further... Or a university further, venue that is out of town, uh, you know, on paper. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, and we're up against a lot of cities who have that walkable convention centre right at the heart of the city. And that leads into your sustainability as well, that you don't have to be bussing people or getting them on taxis or providing infrastructure around transport. They can literally walk from their hotel to their convention centre. In my lifetime, I would love to see a convention centre in the city centre. And by convention centre, I don't just mean for conferences. I mean something multi-purpose that can have some community activity in it, that can have the arts and culture aspect, that can double up as a taekwondo studio if we were to bring an international taekwondo event, you know, something that's multi-purpose. I think um, the city centre definitely, then, you know, I'm, I'm learning it inside out and I'm, I'm living and, and breathing it and sometimes it gets my, my soul. But I do find that a lot of our activity within the city centre is 6pm. It ends at 6pm and then what happens is around 8.30, 9 o'clock, you might start to see a little, particularly on weekends, you'll see that evening economy kick in, but you're missing something that fundamentally has, you know, thousands of people Absolutely. coming to do things. Absolutely. And the university and the other academic institutions do a lot to try and encourage people that are having a conference, maybe out in Castle Troy, to come into the city. But that's an encouragement role. If there was something actually physically in the city, you wouldn't have to be trying to motivate people. That nighttime economy would be there by default. Now, at the moment, you're trying to say to them, you know, go in, there's great restaurants. You're trying to put, you know, kind of incentive opportunities in place to encourage people to go into the city more and more. And then it becomes a personal choice for them. What we try to do, because we don't currently have an event centre, is ensure that people will have a city event as part of the overall programme. Maybe for a sports event, it's an opening service in King John's Castle. Maybe it's a mayoral mm -hmm. reception because it's a prestigious medical or, 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 event or conference that's coming to the but region. But in a sense, it's a wink and a nod to the city as opposed to it being at the heart. Uh, talk to me about just on this, because when you're looking at a big event, now let's say you get a medical games or a, a big medical conference with 500 delegates, we'll call it. I'd put 500 as the delegate number. 
What's the economic return on that for the destinations where it's held? Yeah, so for an international conference, each international delegate is worth 1,600 euros to the local economy. Per individual? Per individual. So 500 by 1,600, we're talking... Uh, <laughs> it's sizable. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. I suppose annually for us, we have a multiplier for sports events and we have a multiplier for conferences. Sports events doesn't have as high a multiplier However, they do tend to stay longer and they tend to bring more people with them. So by, by effect, they're, they're, there's a bigger multiplier in the background in terms of the vacationing and so on. Um, but annually, we would contribute conference and events business coming into the wider Shannon region, about 11 million euros to wow. the local economy. So it is a really And I think sizable. it gives you a case to argue to the powers that be that that conference facility, you know, you're talking about in your lifetime. Now, I hope you don't die young, Karen, because, <laughs> you know... I would like to be thinking that within, we have a 2030 plan and that 2030 plan, if I'm correct, that the, the phrasing from it was that Limerick was going to be at the heart of the Midwest region and it was talking about an economic renaissance and all of the terms that were being used, and it's not being critical, is about changing the way we've done things and changing the way we've done things is about putting the city centre and the, the, the city at the heart of the region. We have Cleves. We have yet to see a master plan for Cleves, and I think exactly what you're talking about. If it is not at the heart of the Cleves master plan, I I'll run because it is. You know, we missed a chance with the Opera Centre. It's we we're looking at our offices there, and I also we've also got the Docklands development, but whether that'll be um, a later project. But I think with Cleves, they have got to fundamentally make it about a living, breathing 24-hour place that caters for people coming in, keep people living and people doing things. And I think that has to be our... Not, not just a conference centre, by the way. It's a big enough site. Absolutely. Um, but I'm no. throwing that out no, as you're, my... you're um, so right. Um, the chair of our board, Tony Brazel, who you'll probably know from Limerick Travel, another great mentor of mine, is a big, big advocate for a city centre. Um, again, not convention yeah. centre, multi-purpose centre yeah. that, that has multi-use. It's mixed use. And, it's, and, it, and, and with that comes excellent design. With that comes bright lights, big city feel. That may, So when people do come they're feeling that they're in a place that is a bit like the gay games, that it's about the people. It's Absolutely. wonderful. But when they're not there, that the people of Limerick have got multifunctional spaces to be using and not to be constantly looking for, you know, things to do in the evening oh, time. So totally. I think there's a huge opportunity there. Is a there. big appetite though, Nigel, especially among the local authority, but they've seen the benefit from a yeah. business tourism perspective. They're very involved in what we would do. Um, and I think there is an appetite there to see an event centre like well, that I'll be, I'll be glad, I'm glad to hear it because, but I think now is the time to really start putting it there because it's you know these things take time to be built and you know we're now 2022 we have eight years to get that conference center built and i'm throwing it out that's what that's <laughs> there's what a target. We, we, there's a target for it but now no, we're talking I mean, talk to me about the Ryder cup because we have exactly. the Ryder cup coming what year is it 2027 2027 now. so three years before that Ryder Cup, whilst it's 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 a it's an internet, we we know what it is. It's 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 massive. It's beyond massive. And congratulations to JP McManus and the team in Adair for doing what they've done. But talk about its importance from your perspective and how it's going to put Limerick on the map. And as a result, us therefore needing really to start being thinking we need the stuff in place. Absolutely. Um, so actually, we have a great conversation going between um, the Bureau of Fall to Ireland and the local authority around how we can capitalise on the Ryder Cup. And that is um, kind of, that's the you know, the, the, 
the golden event that you would get in a calendar of maybe a 20-year cycle of events. But we need to be having key events like that every three to five years. And in between those years, we need to have, if, if it's not a Ryder Cup or a Solheim Cup, it needs to be something like we have coming in the next number of years, like a, a World Championships in, in lacrosse or a World Championships in Frisbee or a World Championships in, in rugby or, or whatever other sports. But there needs to be a key calendar of events. And having the Ryder Cup, people actually sit up and take notice of you as a destination you can you can talk till the cows come home about the great people the great welcome the fantastic facilities um but having having already secured an event like the Ryder cup people will actually think wow they're hosting the Ryder cup they must have something there Ryder cup doesn't just go to any destination there has to be something special about that destination and it almost transcends any issues you might have around accessibility or particular type venues and people just assume everything has to be in place there the transport infrastructure the venue infrastructure it has to be in place because they have the Ryder cup it's like that build it build it in they You're will talking come about it. yeah. in, in olympic terms you would say okay it's not an olympics but it is a massively yeah. the profile event and you see a lot of people say to me oh but look it doesn't really matter because it's in a dare look the numbers of people that will be coming to this just from the golfer background alone the golfers will be bringing teams and oh, teams of people behind them without so, a doubt. and then you have the people who'll travel over from the united states who'll travel from europe to come to this internationally known event they're going to have to stay somewhere they're going to have to play somewhere and it certainly won't be in a dare because they'll be locked down no. in a dare pretty much the Island of Ireland, the will island benefit. of Ireland. It and really will. We, as Limerick, being the host city, which is what we're going to be, I think we have such an opportunity well, to get this. Well, the international right. spotlight will be on Limerick yeah. in terms of the people that are here, the international media and press that will accompany them. Um, yeah, it, it will be a unique opportunity for us to really showcase everything that we have to offer. Tell me, what makes you tick in your spare time? What makes me tick in my spare time? Um, well, my two boys, Sean and Fionn, so one is 20 and the other is 12 and they keep me very busy and very grounded. Two mammy's boys, uh, they'll kill me for saying this if they hear this, but they're absolutely fantastic. I'm so proud of both of them. Tell um, me a little bit about them. What are they at? What yeah, are they so doing? Yeah, so Sean is studying sport and community development in LIT. Oh, wow. Yeah, fantastic for him. And he works part-time in Fairview Rangers Soccer Club up in the Fair Green with his dad. Um, and then Fionn is in first year in secondary school in Colossian, Atrocra and Rathkeel. Wow. Yeah, so quite so, diverse in their age as well as everything. And dogs mean something and to you as well. dogs mean something to me. So I'm a mammy to five dogs. Wow. Yeah, so this lady called Eileen O'Donovan got me um, fostering dogs. Now you're living dogs. in Capamore, is no, it? No, I live in Shannagolden. Golden. Yeah, I'm in Shannagolden. Yeah. As I said, many, many yeah. backgrounds to my life where I've lived. So I but I there's a bit of land for the yes. dogs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I settled in Shannagolden. Um, so this lady called Eileen O'Donovan, who runs a local rescue called Molly Moo's Westie Rescue, um, asked me to foster a dog about five or six years ago for her and I said I would and I couldn't give him back she rang me and said I think we have a home for the dog and I started crying and <laughs> had a dog of my own at the time and oh anyway I realised that dogs were my thing so anyway I decided I'd keep him but I couldn't say no to fostering she, she drives a hard bargain so over the years I've probably fostered 30, 40 dogs at this stage, maybe even wow. more of all breeds. She no longer just does Westies. She rescues every breed and she does phenomenal work. And I like to think that the little bit I do helps, you know, with the issues that we have nationally around animal cruelty. And she gets a lot of dogs that come from puppy farms where they're literally 
Oh my God, it's, it's actually heartbreaking. And my job as a fosterer is to take them from a period where they're so guarded and, and afraid of people and bring them to the point where they can actually be rescued by a, a, a full adoptive family and move on. But because I can't always give them all away, I've ended up with a lurcher, um, a Doberman, a Pomeranian, a Pug, and a cacophony um, of yeah, dogs. Yeah, a cacophony <laughs> of dogs, and it goes on. And I've lost a, a few along the way. And yeah, yeah so, so yeah, I love it. I love the diversity of all the dogs. I love their personalities. And, you know, they're actually, that kind of work is actually brilliant for bringing you down a level. And But it's also, there's something to be said for someone who will give back to a little animal that, has, that can't speak for itself. That, you know, when I see people who will harm or be cruel or neglect an animal, I just, I can't but understand As a dog it. owner, Nigel, you know how much love. Yeah. Yeah, they give back. Um, but I've just seen, and, and when you do get to know them and you know, I mean, you know, uh, I'm not even going to go there because I just think the minute I see anything, if I see something on TV that shows any bit of cruelty, and even if it's Apollo Grady bringing a dog in to get his, his leg removed. You're crying like I, myself. I, no, I have to turn it off. <laughs> oh, I just can't cope. I just sit there crying. Um, yeah, I, I just can't cope. Um, but look, no, fair, fair juice. Going back, one last question on this, right? And, and it's the Limerick thing. I'm going to ask you two questions to finish. What do you think has been achieved most over, and we'll call it over the last 10 years in Limerick, and what do you definitely think needs to be done better? Um, I think the reputation that Limerick has has grown dramatically. I think no longer do people see Limerick in a negative light. I think they see a very positive city that has... As uh, Frank McCourt was um, a patron of the Convention Bureau back in the day, and he said that Limerick had risen from the ashes. And it really has, you know. And um, I can really see the positives um, that everybody has played their part in that journey, you know. And it's great for me to be able to go out and sell such a positive destination, both in terms of infrastructure and, you know, everything that we have to offer. Um, it really makes my job really, really easy. Um, what was the second question, Nigel? Sorry. What would you think it needs to do better? And I think that's maybe let's let's look at the let's look at 2030 as the marker because that's kind of what we've done as a city and a county. We've placed that down as the marker. So what does it need to do better? What do we need to do? Or what better? do we need to achieve? What do we need to achieve? Um, I think we really need to continue our efforts in the whole area of sustainability. It's fantastic to be a green leaf city, but we need to continue that journey. We don't want to be seen as a city that had an award um, and, and then moved on to the next project. That needs to be a long-term investment. Um, I think we need to continue to embrace the river. It's absolutely phenomenal. And I love the idea, as I said, of having something riverside, city centre, whether it's an art centre or a convention centre or just a tourist attraction that can complement King John's Castle and all the other wonderful attractions around the city um, to attract people down towards the river. I think it's a huge amenity, both in terms of sport and social and culture that we really need to capitalise more on. Um, and I think, yeah, just, just to keep the positive messages out there about Limerick, I mean, keep the good PR. Laura Ryan does an amazing job in the marketing office in the city. Big shout out to her. And every time I have a group coming in or every time I have a query, she's always there to help and support. And having a positive Limerick out there is really important. And when I say that, I have to mention one other person um, when I'm talking about positive Limerick and that's Richard Lynch and I love Limerick he does phenomenal work as well and has, and has been, been and has been for uh, well over a decade a fantastic supporter of everything I do as well from, from the Bureau perspective whether it's coming out to meet a group if I needed or having a positive message in the media about the work of, of the Bureau as well he's been fantastic and I've probably forgotten loads of people that do fantastic work but that's my couple of shout outs don't worry there's, there's loads of them out there and they know who they are too um 
if you were told tomorrow morning, I've got a lovely job on Wall Street, would you give up what you're doing now? Not in a million years. No, mm. absolutely not. I think you, you fall into things for the right reasons. I said this to somebody else today. Everything happens for a reason. And I think going to New York was certainly something that was to happen to me. And it was to make me realize that Wall Street was not where I needed to be. Park Avenue, yes, for a time, but then definitely tourism for, for a lifetime. And final question for all the people who will come after us, be it your grandkids or the people, other people's grandkids. What would you like your legacy to be in Limerick? I think I'd like my legacy um, to to mean that I've left behind a destination that's seen as a sustainable destination, but also a really inclusive destination. So I'm currently studying a certificate in equality, diversion and inclusion in UL. And it would be remiss of me not to say that one of my key objectives for Limerick is for Limerick to really be recognised as an inclusive and diverse city where everyone is welcome, no matter who they are. Karen Brosnahan, your passion for the area is very clear and thank you so much for being a guest on the Posterity Podcast and I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you. Thanks, Nigel. You've been listening to the Posterity Podcast with me, Nigel Dugdale, produced by the Limerick Post in association with Limerick City Community Radio. Theme tune composed by David Blake and performed by the Brad Pitt Light Orchestra. If you want to get in touch with me or suggest any future guests, you can contact me directly on Twitter at Limerick City Biz or you can contact the Limerick Post at Limerick Post. <laughs>